0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now onto Climate Rising.
1: The energy transition over the course of the next 20, 30 years is going to be the largest um, capital formation project that humanity has ever undertaken. It is going to be a massive opportunity for incumbent businesses, as well as for entrepreneurs, for investors, for consultants.
0: This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, recorded recently at an HBS reunion in front of a live audience, I'm speaking with Jules Kortenhorst, CEO of RMI, a nonprofit working to accelerate the transition to clean energy. I asked Jules to discuss his journey and describe some of RMI's innovative partnerships with companies and industries to promote the transition to clean energy. I also asked him what advice he gives to those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. Here's my interview with Jules Kortenhorst of RMI. Jules, thanks so much for joining us on Climate Rising. Delighted to be here, Mike. Why don't we start today by just asking you to describe your role at Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI,
1: as you're known. I uh, joined RMI about nine years ago as the CEO. Um, And as, um, as part of that job, I, of course, have to help the Institute raise the money to do its work. Um, but a lot of my work is also in creating the collaborative efforts across the climate arena with companies, with industries, financial institutions, but also with other civil society organizations.
0: Great, and for those who aren't familiar, can you just provide a, a sketch of what is RMI, what's the scope of its activities?
1: RMI is uh, now an organization of five hundred people around the world. We were started more than 40 years ago by Amory Lovins, a student at Harvard who um, saw the need for and the opportunity of the energy transition. And he created the institute in the Roaring Fork Valley near Aspen because he felt that that place would be inspiring for thinking about sustainability. Over the last 40 years, we've become sort of the leading civil society organization in promoting the energy transition in working with businesses and industries to accelerate the transition to a zero carbon future. Folks, we are facing a planetary emergency and just thinking about the problem is no longer sufficient. We have to really, really focus our efforts on driving impact at scale. So that's what we do. Great, and we're gonna talk about
0: a number of the efforts that RMI has launched to try and drive impact at scale. But before we jump into that, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about your journey uh, to RMI, it's not people when they think of HBS graduates, they don't think of them as heading think tanks or or environmental NGOs. So, and you didn't get there directly from HBS.
1: That's right. Um, this is our 35th reunion. I go back to sitting in these rooms and thinking about the the pressures of uh, what job are you going to take immediately coming out of school for my wife Solveder and me, the most important thing having met each other in business school was figuring out where the overlap was between her locations as an American and my locations as a European. We found ourselves working for industrial companies, um, Procter & Gamble and in my case Shell over in Europe. So I spent the first 10 years of my career um, learning the practicalities of general management at uh, Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, as you all know. It was a great opportunity to work for that organization, but it was also a big bureaucratic company, right? So after about 10 years, I switched to becoming uh, the CEO um, of private equity-backed companies, was involved in a number of uh, deals and and ran companies in a variety of industries, industrial electronics, cosmetics manufacturing, uh, outsourced um, call center services. When I exited the last company and pondered what would be next, um, my family background and my upbringing led me to think about giving back about uh, public service. A a journey of reading and listening and, and talking to people very quickly crystallized in my mind that climate change already at that time, this is now 15 years ago, is the biggest issue that we face as humanity. So as a result, I decided to dedicate my, uh, the remainder of my career to uh, climate change. I first became a member of parliament in the Netherlands <coughs> under the naive and optimistic idea that politicians could change the rules of the game that would lead to the decarbonization of our energy system. Uh, my experience as a politician was not a very good one. Um, <laughs> I then was the founding CEO of the European Climate Foundation, which has become the largest philanthropic vehicle for climate and energy policy in Europe. And About nine years ago, I got the opportunity to uh, come back to the United States to uh, run RMI.
0: So RMI began as a think tank, fairly small. It's ramped up quite a bit under your leadership and faces lots of decisions about its scope of activities. Early on, I remember it was really focused on energy and energy conservation, uh, which I think it still uh, has this energy focus. But why do you tell us about how you think about which uh, engagements, its scope, and, and then we'll dive into a couple of those just to provide some,
1: some context. Yeah, so early on when I joined the organization, we went through a strategy cycle to figure out precisely where our focus was going to be. and. Uh, Climate change is a hugely complex and multifaceted problem. There is mitigation addressing the sources of global warming and addressing the issues with the energy transition, but there's also adaptation helping the world adjust to a warmer climate. We explicitly decided from the beginning our focus was going to be on mitigation. Uh, As you may know, 70 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are part of the energy economy, the remainder 30% is largely from land use, agriculture, forestry, Uh, a very different field of work, so we decided to remain focused on the energy uh, emissions. Um, And then, within energy, uh, our view is that the energy system is a complex system. Uh, a, A systems approach is the best way of tackling it. As you already hinted at, we always start with energy efficiency and energy conservation. Because if you can make the problem smaller, then making the transition to uh, a zero carbon future is easier. But also, for the longest time, energy efficiency technologies have been profitable and and have been applied successfully. So we start with energy efficiency, um, but we cover the full spectrum of the energy system and its emissions. And we do that uh, initially in the United States, but now in China, in India, in Africa, Southeast Asia, small island states, pretty much around the world.
0: Yeah, so when we say energy systems, we're thinking electricity generation and transportation, I imagine. Are those the two big verticals you're... And I know you're working in both of
1: those areas. Is that the the full list? Um, Those are two very important ones, but they're not the only ones, because if you think about where we use energy, We use it across the economy and people immediately go in their minds to wind and solar and therefore the power system, the electricity system, and then we think about electric cars, but there is a very significant part of energy use and emissions associated with our built environment about 40% of energy is used in buildings. So that's the demand side of some of that power that is being generated. But it is also the emissions associated with heating and cooling. Right. And the last sector that people often forget is industry. And in fact, much of the decarbonization of industry is still earlier on is more complex, is more challenging. Uh, Sometimes we refer to those sectors as the hard-to-abate sectors. Think about steel and petrochemicals and uh, cement, uh, food and agricultural products. Uh, So there's an inordinate amount of energy that is involved in the industry sectors as well.
0: Right, and for those industry sectors, we're thinking also heating and cooling, like process technologies, the, the emissions from some of those process reactions Uh, and also a lot on the inputs.
1: You just hit on one really critical point, right? Um, Both steel and cement use um, a chemical reaction to be produced that by its nature emits CO2. So iron ore is converted into steel by reducing the iron ore with carbon, with coal, to to steel, uh, and similarly we cook limestone to produce Portland cement, and together those two sectors are responsible for about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, So there, it's not simply replacing uh, the input of energy with something clean, but we actually need to fundamentally overhaul the underlying process, which is a huge challenge.
0: Great. So that's the landscape of the challenge. Let's dive into some of the activities that RMI is engaging in. Why don't we start with electricity, which is one that I think most people are generally familiar with, like trying to figure out how to green the grid or how to move from centralized to decentralized production. What are some of the activities RMI is engaging in there?
1: So, originally, we were significantly involved in the scale-up of distributed renewables, wind and solar in particular. And these technologies have gone through an amazing learning curve over the last 20, 30 years. Pretty much everywhere around the world now, it is cheaper to produce electricity from solar or wind than any other form of power generation. In fact, here in the United States, we can shut down each coal plant and replace it with wind, solar and uh, battery backup and be cheaper off. But the fact that it is cheaper to shut down an existing coal plant and replace it with wind and solar doesn't mean that that automatically happens, because there is a political economy around all of that. There are stakeholders, there are transaction costs, there's some misinformation. So uh, helping these transitions accelerate uh, is a lot of the work that we do. So at the moment we are advising a number of governments, Southeast Asia and Africa, on precisely this transition. And it is because coal represents about 40% of total emissions. Uh, If we can start to shut down existing coal plants and replace it with renewables and battery storage, then we are rapidly on the trajectory to decarbonize our electricity system, which then becomes the cornerstone of the rest of the energy system.
0: Great. Well, I'm glad you mentioned battery storage at the end there, because a lot of times when folks make this comparison between coal and renewables, they forget that coal is used for baseload, and renewables typically is used for peak, in part because of the intermittency issue and the need for storage. So those comparisons that you gave, does that include, uh, when you say renewables uh, are cheaper than uh, coal across most of the U.S., that includes or excludes the need for storage?
1: that includes here in the United States the need for storage. But it is important to realize that, to run an efficient and stable electricity system, we have more than only lithium-ion batteries to create the integration, to create the stability of that power system. First and foremost, um, if regions, if continents, connect their electricity system across the continent, then you can benefit from the fact that It may be wind still here in Massachusetts, but it may be very sunny in Florida, or the wind might be blowing in Iowa. Um, So that grid interconnection, not easy to practically realize, but that grid interconnection is a real powerful lever for stabilizing our uh, electricity grid. The second thing is that we've always traditionally thought about the supply of electricity having to follow demands. But what if we could invert that logic? What if we could have demand follow supply? Now, you'll say, Oh, but I want my beer cold when I want my beer cold, and that is critically important. (laughs) But uh, your refrigerator doesn't have to be on all the time. Your freezer in particular doesn't have to be on all the time. In fact, the compressor only kicks in uh, every 15 minutes or so. So at the very peak of electricity use at 6 o'clock when everybody comes home, turns on the television, you could slow down the cooling of your freezer for a moment. principle called demand response is being deployed increasingly both in households and in uh, in industry. So for example, uh, Google launched a, a product called Nest Renew and we help them think this through. Nest Renew basically tweaks the use of your air conditioner dependent on the availability of green electricity without you ever man- noticing that the temperature in your house might change by half a degree. After that, we get to storage and battery storage is at the moment the short-term and, 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 and high-interest high subject. But remember that we've had pumped hydro storage and hydro in general as a big battery in many places around the world, uh, Pacific Northwest, in Canada, but also all across Europe, China, etc. That's a huge battery that we have at our disposal. And there are new longer-term battery storage storage technologies emerging that uh, in and of themselves are breakthroughs, whether it is compressed air or gravity, uh, really innovative technologies that are emerging as well.
0: And so how is RMI plugging into either the demand side or the supply side?
1: So, as I mentioned, we involved ourselves with demand response early on. We saw this incredibly important need of being able to have demand follow supply rather than the other way around in the electricity system. So we've engaged very actively with companies that have developed those technologies, but also with the electricity regulators, who have to allow demand response to be seen as a resource on the electricity grid. And important to note, that electricity, by its nature, is a regulated market, right? Regulators can have a big, big role uh, in how to shape an electricity system that is low-carbon. So, advising regulators has been an important part of our work. We have an ecosystem of clean tech incubation and acceleration, where we work with some of the early stage uh, battery storage companies. But we've also advised utilities as they think about their so-called integrated resource plans, the plan that they use to lay out the future of their system. Uh, historically, the easiest thing for a utility, particularly a regulated utility, is to say, oh, we'll build another coal plant, we get a guaranteed return from our regulator anyway. Or alternatively, we'll build a gas plant, because that is currently a bit cheaper. But doing these other things like wind and solar already a bit more complex because now your control system has to be really smart or uh, integrating demand response, integrating your customer's behavior in the way you plan for your electricity system gets really complex. So working with uh, the industry to understand that has been a core part of what we do in the arena.
0: So great, let's pivot and talk about transportation. So you have a a mobility focus which I think includes, again, a bunch of technology supports and partnerships and collaborations. Can you speak a little bit about the overview and then an example or two?
1: Yeah, Um, I'm a happy Tesla driver. And for those of you um, who already drive an electric vehicle, you'll have discovered that it is simply a better car, right? Uh, But here's the exciting thing. It's not only a better car, soon it will also be a cheaper car. The learning rate, of battery technology is order of magnitude 22 percent, meaning that uh, every time the globally installed capacity doubles, uh, the price comes down by 22 percent. Now in the short run, the price of nickel has gone through the roof because of the horrible uh, war in Ukraine, Uh, but in the long run, this reduction of battery cost will be a very key determinant in the shift to electric mobility. It's a better car, it's going to be cheaper. You're not dependent on the volatility of gas for your fuel, far less maintenance. Uh, so it all around makes a lot of sense to switch our mobility to electricity. Uh, automotive companies have now seen this, right? Uh, one after another, the largest automotive companies in the world have decided to pivot wholesale from internal combustion engine cars to EVs because they recognize that keeping two platforms side by side is just way too expensive. But Like in electricity, in mobility, there are transaction costs and barriers to uptake and so on. And and we all know about range, anxiety, and the infrastructure. Uh, We need to massively scale up the charging infrastructure, uh, particularly in this country. Europe is ahead on this front. China is ahead on this front. Uh, In fact, in Europe and in China, EVs now make up 20% of new vehicles being sold. Uh, So, some of the work that we do uh, is to help the scale-up of the charging infrastructure, working with the government and with states to roll out that infrastructure, but also to convince fleet owners about the massive benefits they already have today from lower total cost of ownership of electric vehicles. And the exciting thing is this is again not something that is only happening in the United States, um, our work in India with the government of India for the last five years has very much focused uh, on uh, helping India scale up electric vehicle penetration manufacturing, now battery manufacturing. Um, and in India that started with two-wheelers and three-wheelers and minibuses, not with expensive cars like, like mine. Uh, out of that came an effort uh, with uh, distribution companies and e-commerce companies in India to uh, deliver the last mile delivery of e commerce products with uh, electric vehicles, uh, electric scooters, electric rickshaws, uh, and a global campaign is emerging called Shunya, the Hindi word for zero, uh, where companies like Amazon and FedEx and UPS are committing to deliver e-commerce products with zero emissions. So that's a very cool effort that we've been working on.
0: Yeah, how did that India project arise and what role do you play in deciding who's in and who's out of that collaboration?
1: So it initially started because our founding father, Amy Lovins, made a trip to India and met with a bunch of ministers and they asked for our help. If you start to think about 1.1 billion Indians who understandably want to uh, develop their economy, grow their per capita income. It made sense for us to to allocate the resources. So we sat down with Niti Ayok, the government think tank that supports the Prime Minister's office, and laid out a plan. Um, we, in terms of the collaboration and who we invite, invite in, we are a big believer in open source solutions and open collaboration. So. It's not so much us who decide who is in, but it is the companies themselves that decide, yes, we'll be part of this. It is uh, very rare for us to do anything where we would exclude market participants to to play ball. There's, of course, antitrust considerations, but there's also the wonderful part of my job of running a mission-driven, purpose-led organization. Uh, In the end, we benefit, we do well if we achieve our impact And the more, the merrier is very much part of that that mission.
0: How do you address the potential anti-competitive issues of such collaborations?
1: So we recognize that this is on the minds of uh, partners that we work with. They, in the first or second meeting, always bring a lawyer who is going to raise that issue. Uh, we've developed some standard materials that people sign up to to agree that what we do is so-called pre-competitive collaboration or is for the greater good and therefore not subject to antitrust considerations. But we also have to be conscious of the fact that there is going to be competitive tension uh, around the, the room. Uh, just as one example, um, we have stood up a platform where uh, the main Um, uh, digital companies are gathering up data about public transport as well as ride-sharing as a mechanism for helping consumers understand what is the most cost-effective but also the lowest carbon form of transportation, right? Well, getting Google and Apple in the same room to work on this together, that took uh, more than one lawyer for for quite a while.
0: (laughs) I can only imagine... So uh, when we think about the process technologies, the difficult to abate sectors, you have a program called the Mission Possible Partnership, uh, which has a clever, a clever name. That's covering a variety of technologies. Um, t- if you could tell us the technologies and dive into one of them.
1: Let me start by acknowledging the fact that the Mission Possible Partnership, um, which indeed resulted from a report called Mission Possible, we can do this, is a collaborative effort of four organizations. It is um, beyond RMI, um, uh, the Energy Transitions Commission platform that was uh, stood up by a consulting firm in our arena, Systemic. It's also the We Mean Business Coalition, which is a coalition of civil society organizations working with businesses. And finally, the World Economic Forum. Um, the hosts of Davos. So between the four of us we've created this collaborative effort to address emissions in steel and in cement, in shipping, in aviation, in petrochemicals. And if you think about it, these are indeed all the the sectors where the solution is not as obvious, where the technology may not yet have been brought to maturity, where uh, industry players have historically said, well, uh, I understand that we have to decarbonize, but we all want to travel and we want to go on an airplane, and we can't think through how you can do that without uh, jet ca- uh, jet engine uh, fuel. So, uh, we're just not going to be part of the solution. Well, that mindset has dramatically shifted over the last three, four years. In all of these sectors, there's been a realization that the goal of society to achieve net zero emissions by the middle of this century means that they also have to decarbonize. Uh, and in none of these sectors it is totally obvious or totally easy. But let me take two examples. Maersk, the shipping company, about five years ago stood up an effort uh, called the Global Maritime Forum um, to bring together uh, the shipping companies that were committed to address this issue and they laid out a plan in collaboration with the International Maritime Organization um, to start to say, we can imagine that our ships in due course can sail on green ammonia or green methanol made with green hydrogen. Um, That was a bold commitment five years ago, but the commitment alone was not going to get the job done. We needed to convince banks to finance the investment in those green methanol ships. We needed the fuel suppliers to create the flow of green methanol, green ammonia. That only just started to happen. We needed ports to start thinking about converting their infrastructure. And then we needed customers of shipping companies to say, yes, we're willing to pay extra for uh, the, the cost associated with green shipping. Now, the procurement guy who's in charge of the lowest cost shipping doesn't immediately get that. Mm-hmm. But in the end product of shipping a pair of genes from Asia to the United States, the difference between green ammonia or green methanol versus marine diesel is one penny. And I think that most consumers would be willing to spend one penny more for their genes if that would mean that they were shipped to the United States uh, with zero carbon. Similarly in steel, um, the calculation right now is that green steel, steel that is made with hydrogen as the reduction agent rather than coal as the reduction agent. Um, uh, that, that steel is about 20 to 30% more expensive sort of in the long run. Right now it's even more. But if you assume that there's a certain learning, then it, it will even out at that sort of level. Um, how do you convince anybody to pay 20% more for their steel. No procurement guy or gal is going to sign up for that. But um, Volvo and Mercedes realised that a Volvo passenger car, a Mercedes passenger car, will only be about 100 euros more expensive if it is made with green steel. So those two companies have made early commitments to steel companies like SSAB, and ArcelorMittal to buy green steel at a premium price so that they can have the marketing benefit of saying our electric vehicles are not just electric, but they're also produced with green steel, which is the major component of greenhouse gas emissions in the production of cars. Um, So uh, we see that industry collaboration is absolutely critical across these value chains, suppliers, industry participants, their customers, and their banks and their financiers coming together. So in Mission Possible Partnership, we are bringing these cross-cutting collaborations together uh, in all of the hard-to-bait sectors. It is really exciting to see the commitment of these companies to move in the right direction.
0: Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting to me about that story is this pre-commitment years ahead of time to procure, (laughs) at a price premium, uh, a decarbonized product. Is that something new from your vantage point, or has that been going on all along just under the
1: radar? So I think it is a real breakthrough, because if you think about the transition in the electricity arena, it was not until wind and solar power became cheaper that companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon and others started to buy green electricity at scale. As a result, the shift from... Um, fossil fuel power power generation to to renewables has taken 30-40 years. We don't have 30-40 years. We have to be net zero by the middle of this century. We have to eliminate 50% of greenhouse gas emissions by the end of this decade. So the speed at which this transition needs to happen, our understanding of the speed at which this transition needs to happen, has dramatically uh, increased. So we need to indeed get everybody involved and create commitments early on. We've had great help in this case from um, the administration, Uh, Secretary Kerry, who is currently the Special Envoy for Climate um, for the Biden administration, and has helped stand up the First Mover Coalition. I don't know the exact number, but but tens of companies have committed to be part of early procurement commitments for green steel, green cement, green shipping, and that is making a real difference.
0: Interesting. There's some other uh, programs that uh, I know RMI is deeply involved in. I wonder if you can comment on uh, third derivative.
1: Yeah. So in the area of electricity, we already have most of the core technologies we need, but we can still Benefit from better storage, uh, digital technologies to better forecast the, the performance of the grid, um, and so on. And as we were just talking about the hard to abate sectors, there we do need many more technology breakthroughs. Um, some of you may remember uh, the Clean Tech 1.0 venture capital wave of about 10 years ago. A lot of people lost a lot of money thinking that venture capital in the clean tech arena was going to be more or less the same as, as social media. It isn't. They are difficult technologies, they are very um, intensive, hard tech technologies. And as a result, getting from a lab scale innovation to deployment of that solution at scale and therefore cash flow break even or even better takes a long time. So we recognize that accelerating that innovation pipeline would be a real uh, benefit. So we've brought together about a dozen corporates and more than 75 startups and a number of venture capital firms to help push early stage companies through the various valleys of death of cleantech incubation uh, much faster. And Third Derivative is now seen as having uh, some of the best cleantech pipeline and great investment opportunities.
0: So this is an incubator sharing knowledge across organizations?
1: Yeah, we call it an accelerator. uh, But yes, it it is essentially an accelerator. Um, And so far, our 75 companies have raised um, close to 400 million in venture capital money in the last year and a half. So it's building quite a bit of momentum.
0: Wow. Another way you're trying to accelerate uh, the transition is through the Energy Transition Academy, targeting a different population. Can you share about that?
1: Yeah. We have to do this around the world, right? Not just in the developed world, not just in Europe and the United States. And um, it is hard to keep up with all the changes, the pace of innovation, the new technologies, the solutions, if you're deeply in the middle of it at RMI or if you have a Department of Energy with 40,000 staff. But if you're the Minister of Energy in Malawi or uh, the utility regulator in Laos, then it's even more challenging. So we've recognized that building the capacity for decision-making and understanding in this space is really critically important. The good news is uh, we've all learned to become digital, right, so we can do this in a way that we couldn't imagine 10 years ago. Um, so, the Energy Transition Academy is a digital mechanism to educate and build capacity uh, for energy decision makers, investors, regulators, policymakers uh, all around the world, but with a special emphasis on the global south.
0: Interesting. Now, why, uh, most of what you've been saying, I can imagine, this, most of the activities that RMI is engaging in could equally be engaged upon by a consultancy model. So, can you say a little bit, why is RMI a nonprofit think tank instead of a for profit consultancy?
1: That's a good question. And we are probably one of the more entrepreneurial, business minded uh, nonprofits uh, in the world. In fact, um, we've organized ourselves like a consulting firm as a partnership. And if you look around the table with my 24 uh, senior partners, uh, I would say that 20 of them have a background in the private sector, be it at consulting firms or big tech companies or of course in the energy sector. Um, until recently, this subject was not yet fully on the agenda of the major consulting firms. and. You can imagine that the partner in charge of the mining industry or the power sector or the oil and gas sector didn't really like it when the partner in charge of sustainability was too loud and too ambitious. I think we're seeing a massive uh, realignment in the major consulting firms. I think a realization has emerged also there, as it has in every boardroom, that this is a planetary emergency, but it is also a great business opportunity. So. Uh, These consulting firms are left, right and center, standing up their internal climate alignment practice or their sustainability practice. They are growing their resources as quickly as they can, recruiting people out of business school, but also from RMI. And in fact, funny anecdote, one of the major consulting firms I think a regular uh, attendance here on campus uh, comes knocking on our door uh, about a year ago, how do you acquire a non-profit, would you guys be for sale? (laughs) And it was uh, a funny conversation to explain to them that we get out of bed to save the planet uh, rather than to make money. Mm. (laughs) Um,
0: All right, so I think at this point uh, let me ask you, many uh, of our students and other folks I meet, folks in their 20s and 30s, very often are thinking about how to engage a career in business and climate in some manner. And I wonder if you have thoughts, what advice do you give to such folks? What resources
1: do you point them to? First of all, congratulations. You've landed on an area of interest that is also an area of massive opportunity. The energy transition over the course of the next 20-30 years is going to be the largest um, capital formation project that humanity has ever undertaken. It is going to be a massive opportunity for incumbent businesses as well as for entrepreneurs, for investors, for consultants. So. Um, I hope that many people have those thoughts uh, here in the in the Harvard uh, classroom. Um, I would argue that, somewhat different from five to ten years ago, that the most important and most urgent need now is in the private sector and in the financial arena. Ten years ago, when I came to reunion and I told my classmates that I had decided to dedicate my life to climate change, They looked a bit askance at me and said, yeah, yeah. yeah. always thought Jules was a liberal European. (laughs) (laughs) But now, uh, this is on the radar screen of every investor and of every boardroom, every business, every financial institution. So there is is a massive opportunity. If that is um, true, then that is also the place where the the great jobs are emerging. I speak a lot to young people we recruit out of graduate schools and we compete with some of the consulting firms and investment banks Um, and uh, the opportunities now are um, abundant and I would argue that uh, we need smart, passionate young people in the private sector Um, and uh, we need um, those organizations to feel the push from the bottom up from young staff coming in to move in the right direction. It also will teach you skills and, and uh, insights about how to, how the private sector works. That can be very helpful no matter what you do uh, later in your career. Um, the final thing I will say is that, um, of course, there are the incumbent energy companies. I started my career at Shell. I now serve on Shell's new energy advisory board and I know they're noodling very hard at how to shift that massive organization from a fossil fuel-based energy company to a decarbonized energy company. But the amount of opportunity for entrepreneurship, for new ventures, for innovation is extraordinary. And there's going to be some people who become very, very wealthy and very, very successful while doing the right thing for humanity. So that, in my mind, is maybe one of the coolest areas to focus on.
0: Great. Thank you. So let me turn it open to the audience, our Reunion uh, HBS alums. So uh, questions? Very impressed with the work RMI does. Uh, You mentioned the role of regulators in uh, the transition in the United States especially. Um, With um, the low cost of renewable energy, which you described and the need for electrifying everything, I feel like utilities are one of the primary institutions for driving the transition. And I wonder if you've done any uh, stakeholder conferences, meetings to drive shareholders, regulators, even consumers to understand what the opportunity is for the utilities, for the environment.
1: Yes, that is a that is a critically important part of what we do in the electricity arena. Um, already some eight nine years ago, we stood up what is called ELAP, electricity lab, and where we bring all of the stakeholders that you just mentioned together. Um, we also invite um, not just the utilities, but some of the disruptors, some of the technology innovators that bring new technologies uh, that that have an impact on that sector. Um, What is quite striking is the progress we've made over the last eight, nine years in utilities, seeing everything to do with decarbonization as a threat to their business model, to now most utilities understanding that this is the future, that this is where they need to be, that this is where they have to go. Not everyone, but most of them are on that journey. Um, The the real difficulty um, in this country in particular, is that electricity regulation is done at the state level, there are therefore 50 uh, electricity regulatory bodies, uh, utility commissions mostly, and um, that is often a job somewhat later on in your career. Uh, Not every electricity regulator may be completely up to speed on the latest technologies. Some of those appointments are um, possibly a touch more political. Um, And the understanding of what can be done and what needs to be done in in the utility regulatory arena is not always where it needs to be. Uh, It is also fundamentally important for regulators to understand that the mantra that the market will fix this is not true. It is not true because electricity, energy is not a storable commodity, is not a tangible commodity, so you have to regulate it to make sure that that market actually emerges in a sensible way and addresses issues like capacity. Uh, What we saw in Texas about a year ago when uh, that winter storm knocked out a lot of the gas plants and as a result the grid shut down because the market was going to fix it. Well, not in a crisis like that. Um, so, regulators don't always um, have the know how that they need to have, or they don't always have the insight in what is happening or what is needed. Critically important.
0: Great. Uh, in the center?
1: You mentioned battery storage. There certainly is a lot of concern about the other environmental impacts of large quantities of battery storage. Can you talk about that? and potential innovations that would address some of those concerns. Thank you. Yeah, batteries immediately evoke the image of end of life recycling and and what do you do with batteries, but also in the production of batteries Um, You may have read about the horrors of cobalt mining in the Congo, um, which has both a horrible environmental footprint, but also very negative uh, human rights implications. Here's the good news. The amount of innovation in the battery arena in the last five years is through the roof. Venture capital money pouring in research programs, government support. So new battery chemistries are emerging that are eliminating particularly those rare earth minerals like cobalt. Uh, in fact, the, the new Tesla 3 battery does not have any cobalt in it anymore. And also uh, the first battery recycling uh, plants are being built as we speak. Uh, also important to recognize that automotive batteries can easily find a second life in storage on the grid because the repeated cycles of charging and discharging that over the course of time reduce the effectiveness of batteries, which is important for your range in electric vehicles, that is not as much of an issue on on the grid. Uh, So a lot of solutions are on the way to address this issue. Um, In the short run, yes, it's still an issue. But finally, also remember, you need to mine and, and produce a battery only once for a car that then can drive hundreds of thousands of miles. The production of fossil fuels happens every day to fill your tank every day. So those horrible environmental impacts um, of the mining um, are one-off in the case of batteries where they, every day, when it comes to fossil fuels. In the back, please.
0: Thank you again for your words, for the encouragement for new students to to take on these challenges uh, i'm from the class of 91 I'm reforesting an area in the high Amazon uh, with edible trees at, at risk of extinction while monitoring wildlife that's also at risk of extinction however carbon credits in areas like ecuador are unavailable they don't there's no, and they certainly don't reach down to those who are deforesting. So the economic incentive continues to be to cut down the trees and put in cattle. That is the structure as it is now. Where does the support come from? Thank you.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for what you're doing, because – and let me highlight this again – we have to be net zero in greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century. But given the pace of capital stock turnover, it is hard to imagine that we are going to hit that target. So we're going to need what is called negative emissions. We need to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And reforestation, whether it is um, in the Amazon rainforest in Latin America, or simply in the hills in Colorado or California that have been burned down by forest fires, uh, is a critical part of how we're going to keep climate um, sustainable. Now, right now you're absolutely right, those carbon markets are not yet functioning in the way they should. Um, There is an increased awareness of companies that they want to not just eliminate their own emissions, but also use offsets for the emissions in their value chain over which they don't have control or reduce their historical emissions eliminate the historical burden that they've put on the atmosphere. In fact, Microsoft has committed to become a net-zero company over the course of its history. Uh, So, as a result of that, we are starting to see corporates, financial institutions look into the market of carbon offsets, of negative emissions technologies, of forestry solutions, and these voluntary carbon markets are evolving quickly. There are a number of issues around these markets. We haven't yet fully figured out how to know for sure that the amazing reforestry work that you're doing in Ecuador is actually making a long-term contribution, and that other projects that are quickly put together without as much care and thought have a different quality. So distinguishing between high-quality carbon credits and lower-quality credits is still a major issue. The the mechanisms that civil society has created for evaluating those credits are not yet working very well, but all of this is now happening quickly.
0: I'll just put a plug in for two recent climate rising episodes on the carbon offsets market. It is is a mess, but there's some really interesting insights coming out. There was an episode on Oxford's approach and on Harvard's approach, uh, which are very different but very complementary.
1: Uh, Why isn't nuclear more part of the discussion, and and do you think it should be? I I guess I'm particularly thinking of the um, molten sulfur plants that have applicability or seem to in shipping my field. So the first thing is to acknowledge that nuclear is a carbon-free source or largely carbon-free source of power generation. So in that sense, your question is totally valid, right? Why are we not deploying more nuclear? The problem is that the current nuclear fission technologies um, that were created after World War II have, over the course of time, become incredibly expensive because of safety concerns. So, right now, building a new nuclear plant – and there's really only one under construction in the United States, a couple of them in Europe – takes incredibly long and is incredibly costly. So, nuclear is not in the money. Does that mean that we should eliminate it completely? No. There are, in my mind, two hopeful trends. Uh, One is small modular reactors and the other one is nuclear fusion. That, to me, is an extremely exciting development. But we have to recognize that we've been working on nuclear fusion for 25, 30, 45 years. and, and it's always 20 years from now. So <laughs> I'm hopeful, but we have to see uh, and approve of the pudding will be in the eating. Uh, slightly shorter term, uh, there is a trend towards small modular nuclear reactors, uh, reactors that can be built in a factory in a standardized product format and then deployed in the field. That would overcome a lot of delays and capital increases that we currently face with nuclear. And it could be that that technology in due course can become more cost-effective. Good to realize that even if either fusion or these small modular reactors uh, comes to fruition, you're still producing heat, which you then have to turn into steam through a generator into electricity. And right now, the cost of that steam cycle alone is about the same as producing electricity from the sun or from wind the center.
0: Here at Harvard, across the river, there are lots of uh, cells of the university that are pushing forward, both in respect of carbon
1: capture, which you mentioned, but also um, solar radiation management. And I wonder whether uh, Rocky Mountain Institute is active in either of those sectors. And separate from RMI's remit, how you view either of those fitting into the climate problem more generally? It is a very relevant question. Um, People sometimes ask me whether I am an optimist or a pessimist, and my answer is I'm manically depressed. (laughs) There are moments that I'm really optimistic because of the enormous progress that we are making in accelerating the energy transition, and then there are other moments when I deeply understand the complexity of the transition that we have to make and the pace at which we have to make that, that I start to realize we're not on track, we're not moving fast enough. And if that's your belief, then you start to open the space of solutions that you're willing to consider. If you had asked me 10, 15 years ago about geoengineering, about the sort of solutions that are being considered across the river for tinkering with our climate system, I would have said, are you nuts? But today, with eight years left to reduce emissions by 50% and uh, about three decades before we have to be net zero, and knowing the amount of capital stock turnover that needs to happen to get there, I'm starting to worry we're not on track. And if that is the case, we have to consider some of these climate repair solutions. Of course, the big worry is that as we start to dial uh, dials on this very complex system called the, gl- the globe's climate, do we fully understand the, the complexity and the unconsidered implications of tinkering with Mother Earth? I don't think we do yet. But it's good that an academic institution like Harvard, uh, similar efforts underway at Cambridge in the UK, uh, is starting to noodle on this. We will have to define very, very close safeguards around doing that so that some rogue nation doesn't suddenly decide to address climate change by exploding a couple of nuclear bombs and creating a nuclear winter, right? Um, That would be an extreme form of geoengineering. On carbon capture and storage, on the other hand, the question is more simple. Bloody hell, why hasn't that technology emerged at scale? Because um, fossil fuel companies had every incentive in the world to commercialize, to scale up, to deploy that technology. They haven't, and as a result, on the scale of economic viability, it's not high up there at the moment, certainly not for power generation. However, for steel and cement, where inherent to the process there is carbon emissions, it may well be part of the solution. Um, We do some work on that, uh, not extensively, but there's great work being done by the Energy Transitions Commission that we are involved in, in precisely that area. Great. So we
0: have time for one last question, please.
1: The Western world seems to be making a sincere effort to reduce coal, coal-produced electricity. However, it's my understanding that the People's Republic of China is replacing that or even more uh, coal-powered electricity there. A, is that true? And B, generally, what is the posture of the PRC on climate, climate change, etc.? Please, thank you. That is a very, very important question and thank you for raising it because there is some misinformation around this subject uh, and there are also very important complexities to consider. First of all, you're absolutely right. China has continued to build out coal capacity um, throughout the last couple of years, although we've seen the pipeline of new projects come down very dramatically. And also good news, China has stopped financing new coal plants outside of China, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, no longer includes new coal plants. So that's good news. Coal plants have been getting built in China to a significant extent to drive short-term economic growth, not because of the fact that China needed necessarily new coal capacity. In fact, the average capacity utilization of coal plants in China is around 50% and has been falling. So that doesn't make any sense, right? But it makes sense in the political economy of that country. At the same time, it's important to recognize the unbelievable pace at which China is ramping up renewables and is generally pushing this transition. Like I said earlier, 20% of new cars on the road in China are electric vehicles. But let me give you another example. Just last year, China installed 17 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in one single year. Those 17 gigawatts equate all of the capacity currently built out in Europe, the dominant offshore wind market. And for those of you who don't know, the United States has the sum total of six um, wind turbines off Block Island. And although a pipeline is now emerging, there are significant concerns about the Permitting and the siting that may slow down further deployment of offshore wind in the United States more broadly. We can we have to be completely realistic about the massive emissions from the Chinese economy at the moment, in absolute terms, and also per capita. But we also have to give them credit for having become the factory of the world for some of these technologies, for putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to domestic deployment. Uh, For example, China has deployed more um, high-voltage DC, these big grid interconnections to carry renewable electricity from the west of the country to the the sea um, shores where most of the people live. And so I would say that China is absolutely pulling its weight when it comes to deploying the new technologies, but not doing enough in shutting down fossil fuel energy.
0: So, Jules, thank you so much for joining us on Climate Rising, and thank you to our alumni for spending some of your reunion with us. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Jules Kortenhorst, CEO of RMI, recorded live at a recent HBS reunion. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.